Every child needs this education. It actually doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. Purposely Podcast, amplifying the stories of people who are making a positive difference to society and the environment. People inspired by purpose. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to Purposely with Sarah Manley, CEO of the Sir John Kerwin Foundation. Sarah is a passionate and committed charity professional. She shares her organization's mission to empower young people positively impacting on their mental health. She also shares her career journey and life journey and why she does not resemble her siblings. Fascinating conversation, which you're going to enjoy. Before we dive into the show, could I just ask whatever platform you're on, whether it's Apple, Spotify, or another, please hit follow. Also leave a review as it really helps me to get the message out there and grow this podcast. Enjoy. This episode of Purposely was brought to you by Benevity, the all-in-one software solution that benefits employees, customers, nonprofits, and society. Let's get back to the show. Sarah Manley, welcome. Thank you. You're the Chief Executive of the Sir John Kerwin Foundation. Yes. What's its mission? What's its purpose? So we uh, were established four years ago, uh, and our mission is to basically transform the youth suicide statistics in New Zealand. And we're doing that through delivering mental health education into schools. And so this is uh, the, the, the the baby, I guess, of uh, Sir John Kerwin. And he woke up one morning, saw how bad the suicide statistics in general were in New Zealand and said, something has to change here. We have to do something differently. And so he pulled together, you know, top, top uh, researchers, top psychologists, anyone really that could get in the room to say what really genuinely has to change. And it was that the earlier, basically the earlier education that we can give young people, that we can give tamariki, the better opportunity they have in later life. So we're out there to create that intergenerational systems change. And key to it is teaching mental health, which is a, a, a little bit of a unique concept. Yes. But before we dive into mm. that, let's especially for our international guests. So John Kerwin, JK, global fo- sports superstar. <laughs> like, yes, he is. Certainly world famous in New Zealand, that's for sure. But yeah. um, tell, he's, he's now, he's had his own um, challenges with mental health, yeah. which he's very open about. Tell us a little bit about the founder and a little bit about sure. JK. <laughs> I'm glad you're not going to ask me anything about his sporting history. But yes, he's con- he is considered one of the greatest All Blacks uh, of all time. Um, but he's also very well known, uh, and I and I think probably now by most New Zealanders, not just for his um, sporting prowess, because he also uh, he also played rugby league uh, for New Zealand as well. He openly came out to talk about depression. Uh, And he was one of the very first uh, men, uh, especially, you know, back in the day, so to speak, who came out openly to say, I have depression and it's okay not to be okay. And he just, I think, lifted the stigma. Well, he started that process of lifting the stigma attached to people that were keeping this secret, keeping this to themselves. And of course, you know, all the challenges that come along with that. So he... I mean, even looking back on it myself, to do that, it was just such a brave thing to do. 
in a country that's so stoic that, you know, is a country that, you know, men, you know, men must be a certain way and they have to do a certain thing and they have to be a certain type of, you know, man to be a man in New Zealand. And he turned all of that on his on on its head. And I am genuinely amazed since being in this role, the amount of people when I say where I work who have said, JK saved my life, JK saved my father's life, JK saved my brother's life. You know, he just he just did something so incredibly powerful for so many people. Yeah, because New Zealand is a macho culture, right? And uh, especially yeah. an all black. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, I can't even, I don't, I mean, and he's written books about it. The thing is, JK can talk about mental health like nobody else can. That's that's the truth. So I'm not even going to bother to try. But if you ever read any of his books or look at any of the work he's done in this space, and I mean, you can find it everywhere. It's just such a, you know, his vulnerabilities of just putting it all out on the table, um, but also giving people hope to say, I got through it and you can get through this. You know, and I think, and I think we forget the story of hope that he has given to so many people as well. So from afar, it looked like he returned from overseas and he wanted to do something in New Zealand, his home country. And he sort of approached it from setting up a charity as well as doing a commercial enterprise. So there's, there's that yes. definition? Yeah, absolutely. So he also uh, has a business called Groove, uh, which is a yeah fantastic uh, workplace mental health sort of well-being package with many different ways that workplaces can get involved, you know, to make sure their employees have good mental health but the charity which is separate uh, and that's an app yeah as part of groove there is an app but there's also more to it as well other than just an app so if i think if anyone's interested definitely go and check that out and they've now actually extended their uh, services into the uk as well so i know that groove you know really want to want to go global with the charitable side of of uh, what JK wanted to do though he did want to do something a little bit different and he's he was very big on systems change so he just didn't want another program he just didn't want another charity trying to do good now I don't mean that rudely because you know charities do wonderful important work but he didn't just want a charity for the sake of a charity he wanted to create something that was going to try something that's never been tried any, anywhere else, which is what Mighty is all about. So it's it's fundamentally different uh, and unique. So the starting point was one in five children have a sort of mental health incident in their early years, which is, which is high. And this idea that you can intervene by giving young people or children the tools. So... you're in fact preventative work? We are preventative. I think though what makes us uh, unique, Mark, is, uh, and it's just really important to highlight, is because there are respectfully many sort of mental health providers and everyone everyone sort of knows, right, okay, if you want to create change, you have to start young with children. I don't, you know, I think people, we've all heard that and we all talk about that. But actually what we do at Mighty is we teach the teachers how to deliver mental health education into their schools so that mental health becomes as normal as maths and literacy, so that children don't even realise they're being taught mental health. It's not a unique thing. It's just actually part of the DNA, part of the school, part of the class. And so the research showed, yes, early years are incredibly important. It's actually too late when they're sort of in their secondary school age. You need to be teaching young, but you need to integrate it into the overall education, into the overall classroom and school if there is going to be 
a generational difference. So that's what we've done is, is everything we develop can be embedded into the curriculum into school so teachers can just take a lesson plan. They could be teaching science, they could be teaching math, but at the same time they're actually teaching better mental health. Wonderful. And it came from JK's own experience, so his sort of realisation that it, if he'd been given these similar tools, if he'd been, you know, uh, cared for in the w- same way, that his life would be different, his mental health would be different. Like That was the starting point for him. Yeah, absolutely, because uh, he's really clear that, you know, he woke up in the morning, he saw the headlines about us having some of the worst suicide rates in the developed world and just said, this just isn't good enough, something has to change. And if I, if I, if I don't do something you know, who will. And so, you know, as he said, is perhaps that if he had these tools in his toolbox as a younger person, perhaps it wouldn't have got so bad for him. Perhaps he could have known a little bit earlier to regulate some of the emotions that he was feeling and, you know, what are some things that he could put in place in regards to, yeah, not not getting to that point where it feels so bad that it's just taking you over and pulling you under completely. And that's what that's ultimately what we're trying to do. So year one of the foundation, I guess, J- um, JK, John Kerwin, utilizing his fame and his brand and his position to rally some supporters, I imagine, and get yeah. some people around it. Yeah, like he, like I say, he brought in uh, the University of Auckland. He got some incredibly talented people to come in and sort of do the work and start the planning. And I think, you know, JK's really big on innovation and he's relentless on his focus here. I mean, it's when I took the job, I have to admit, you have that moment where you go, okay, yeah, you know, people do these things, big names do these things, and is he, is he the real deal? And he's just a hundred percent the real deal. He just, he, this man will not give up until there's a change. Uh, and so he, yeah, he just sort of brought the best in the business together and said, let's do this, but can we do something different? Um, and he's also been really clear. Uh, really, really clear, if we start doing something and it's not working, we stop. We're not going to try and push it. We break it down and we we start it again and we shouldn't, we should be brave about doing that. And also really big that actually if we get it to the point where actually we have something fundamentally brilliant here, we give it to whoever it needs to go to anywhere in New Zealand, anywhere in the world. And actually we step back. We're not, we're not going to be a foundation that exists for the sake of existing. Once it's, once it's at its pinnacle, we, we give it, we give it over and we hand it over. So, you know, there's a genuine intention uh, here to make a to make a really big difference. And one of the key elements from the outside looking in was it's funder-led, so you you fundraise first before you deliver, but it's evidence-based. So so Auckland University were a key part of that. Yeah. So there was that in, initial research about is this going to work, how's it going to work, and is it going to make a positive difference? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, so everything we do is evidence-based and we wouldn't do it if it wasn't. And that has really paid dividends for us because we know we're actually delivering really quality content that's continuously tried and continuously tested. And it's and everybody has to keep evolving, but you need you do need sort of the science and the evidence behind it to do that. And like I've said before, there's many really great uh, organisations out there who, with the very best intentions, you know, sort of go to the school assembly and do the 45-minute speech once a year. The evidence says that's simply not enough, you know, to 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 make a difference. So everything we do is looking about how do we really embed this education and impart it so it's it's part, it, it leaves as part of the person, as part of that school. It's who they are, it's how they show up. Yeah, in many ways it makes your ability to to scale this even more challenging because the school that you work with, the area, has to 
really want this and really take it on board and, and really commit to it. That's what it looks like from the outside. Tell us about that first school. Tell us about how it um, sort of incubated. Yeah, sure. Um, so just to add, I wasn't with Mighty when it started. So I've been here now for eight months. But I know with the new schools, it, yeah, it was very much a case of working uh, with those that had a real interest and that were willing. And look, it's a huge commitment by the school because we will work with the school for three and a half years intensively to embed mental health education into their school. So this isn't, you know, this isn't a fly-by-the-night kind of, it's a it's a partnership. And we will actually next year have the full evaluation of the first schools that have gone through. And we're really looking forward to seeing that. But what we've seen through midterm evaluations, mid-year evaluations is there is a massive difference and principals are talking about it hasn't actually just changed the children in the classroom. It has changed my teaching staff. It has changed the culture in our staff room. Uh, so we are, you know, it's it's bigger also than just the kids. It is actually about the whole school approach. And it is a massive commitment for a school to take that on and to do it, to do it well and make sure that it's it's part of who they are. But we know there's such a need and that's what we're hearing from, you know, basically every school is mental health. All these things, all this reform is being pushed on us, all these changes, you know, so much stress and pressure. And actually, my staff have their own mental health issues. My board of trustees have their own mental health issues. The kids are coming with mental health issues. Uh, so it's it's something that is fundamentally important for them too. And what were the surprising challenges of that first school like what were the things that I know you weren't here but that you've you know you've heard from other colleagues or were there challenges to the program in terms of how it showed up yeah well I think um from what I understand is really actually most of the schools loved it and one of the one of the elements that people could get but the schools could get behind it so rapidly is we provide a coach so we're not just handing over you know like a big here's a resource kit and go to it and we'll see you at the end of the year and you can tick these boxes we actually take coaches who are highly trained highly qualified teachers and they go into the classroom and and work hands-on with the mighty lead and with the school as needed so it's a human resource who's actually sitting there and helping you embed the lessons helping you embed the education and being there when sort of you know they're needed so I think that was just such an amazing you know an actual people resource and we do this for free I think that's the other thing people forget this is a three and a half year commitment that a school makes and that Mighty makes and we we deliver that for free we're not charging any school for that so actually what we saw in that first year is that most people were just willing totally willing to get behind it and yes people of course like online you know webinars and all those things and we can put that kind of zoom meetings and stuff in place but actually schools prefer the personal touch and that's what works for us that's our secret sources the coaches uh, and that one-on-one time uh, and that resource is incredibly powerful for every school because you launched pr- pretty much launched during COVID didn't you so in, in many ways, never more needed mental health support for or education for children during that period of time. So mm. there was so much change going on, right? And not every child's house was the same. So everyone had different stuff going on at home. But I imagine uh, to, to, you know, to understand the impact of this was particularly challenging because the program 
in those early years wouldn't have looked the same as it does now. Yeah, exactly. And look, ironically, we're one of the few organisations that COVID probably worked really well for because when it kicked off, actually that's when a lot of the research got done and the product got developed and everybody was sitting at home and we were um, able to leverage everybody's time and energy, including the university who just sort of quickly, you know, built, helped build Mighty. And so then when we sort of got through the worst of it here in New Zealand, we were ready to go and we actually had something reasonably substantial, very evidence-based, and we could sort of hit, hit that ground running and there was such a desperate need for it. So, uh, yeah, the timing for COVID actually worked incredibly well for us. And I'm thinking, you know, like New Zealand is a very diverse place and, you know, like in terms of differences around um, socioeconomic perspectives, also culturally as well, is that is that being part of the journey, understanding different children and how content interacts with different children and how it impacts them and work, some things work for some children that don't work for others. I guess there's been quite a few learnings in that. Yeah, look, there, there has, and we're still learning, if I'm honest. You know, those that's something that we're continuously looking at and trying to be better, trying to meet more needs. But we are actually very clear at Mighty, and JK is very big on this too. Every child needs this education. It actually doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. And so we don't prioritise. Uh, we go where there is a need, but we're across many different schools, uh, working with many different communities. And so far, the feedback is that Mighty Works because it's a very flexible program where uh, when you go in, you don't, you know, the school doesn't have to suddenly rip to shreds all the plans that they had and the things that they wanted to do. We actually sit down, you know, and explain this is how Mighty can fit into all the things that you were planning to do in the first place. So it's it slides in really well. And like I said, we're working with a we're working with very diverse schools. Uh, we're in 126 schools currently, and no one has said no one has said this doesn't work for us. And the word mighty, love that. So uh, mighty children, I'm, I'm guessing. Yes, exactly. Sort of around that whole resilience. And that's that's what we want to do is build resilience. We, we know that even if we had the best product in the world, so to speak, it's not that we're going to ever stop mental health issues. Mental health will always be there. There has been good and bad mental health since the beginning of time and there will be. But we want to develop resilience in young people so they understand uh, the tools they have in their toolbox as they get older. So you've been the role eight months. So you've been into schools and you will have seen it in action. Yes. Without, you know, you're not going to mention individual children, but are, are there scenarios that you've been sort of blown away by or like that, that you've gone, yeah, this is really working? Yes. Uh, actually, I was in Napier last year and I have to say I walked into a classroom and all I could, and, and it was a primary primary school in Napier. And genuinely when I walked into that classroom, all I could feel was a sense of happiness and lightness and a place where kids really wanted to be. Like it just felt like the kind of classroom where kids would feel so excited to come in there every morning. And I was looking at all the art on the wall and just feeling the vibe and, you know, checking things out as you do sort of sitting at the back of the classroom. And at actually at the end of the lesson, the teacher said to me, I call this the mighty classroom. So all of my, you know, everything around you right now is the kids. They're so happy. They're really proud of the things that they're good at. And they're treating each other really incredibly well and beginning to see shifts in their behaviors towards each other. And it just, it just felt like a great place to be. 
And that's that's something that we're really trying to tap into, is to say Mighty makes schools a place where children actually want to come. And we know that's a huge problem in New Zealand at the moment. So we want to keep working on that. Because school could be quite a brutal place, right? Um, you know, and it can start early, primary school, because oh. that's what you focus on, isn't it? Primary? Yeah, primary and intermediate. Yeah. yeah. But no, look, absolutely. I think everybody has that. I don't know about you, Mark. Sometimes I still have dreams, nightmares, where I, I'm back at school, you know, and you in, in your dream, you're like, oh, my goodness, and, and you're back in, yeah, trying to do exams and people coming all over you. And you just think, oh, my goodness, like, this is, you know, where am I? Oh, I'm at school. This is why it feels so scary. Uh, and, yes, yeah, school, school is a big scary place I think and it's not always easy for young people especially with all the variety of pressures now that we have on you know technology um, social media all these other things now that are right there you know impacting young people every day because I remember at primary school this is this might seem ridiculous um, in many ways but there was a teacher I'll, I'll name her Mrs Daniels who allowed the teacher she encouraged us as primary school kids to pick out an hour a week to do something that related to our life dream, like mm, what we wanted to do wow. in life. And so me and a friend would, you know, want to be professional footballers, which didn't end up very going very well. But uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> but there was a couple of things out of that. Was One, it was kind of empowering because it was handing over, you know, the, wow, we can choose what we do for a whole hour of primary school. <laughs> but it was being seen. Like it was as seen as an individual for something that you loved. And like still to this day, I remember a name. But I remember those sessions like yes, they were yesterday compared to all the other stuff, that, mm. which is, I mean, this is growing up in the 70s in New yeah. Zealand, right? Yeah. <laughs> but kids being seen for who they are and as individuals and being encouraged and nurtured, all those things are part of this program that mm. Mm. key to it. Yes, yeah, all all those things, and and you're absolutely right. I'll never forget going on a, a camp in sixth form and um one of the boys there in our class, he was so shy. He never really uttered a word to anybody. And, you know, looking back on it, you can just see he hated being at school and he very much kept to himself. But at that camp, the cool boys, so to speak, the clique, uh, they got sent home from camp um, after, you know, doing what boys do on camp. And um, they they got sent home, the cool boys, and that night there was like a comedy night or, you know, or you're like um, – freestyle night anybody in the class could get up and do whatever they wanted to do and Josh out of nowhere put up his hand and said he wanted to get up and do a like comedy routine and we were all like we've never heard Josh talk this is weird and he got I'll never never forget to this day he got up and just did the funniest impersonations of all these famous New Zealanders and sports stars and he just came to life I'll never forget it he just came to life and what we saw was this brilliant, intelligent, funny, amazing Josh who could only do these things if there weren't certain, you know, people in the room and that fear for him had gone. And he, I can all, all of us remember at the end, we all got up and gave him a standing ovation. And it still gives me chills down my spine, though, to think, you know, I like to think I'm a really friendly, approachable person and can see what's in people. But, you you know, at school, you just don't realise what people are holding on to. You don't realise the talents they have, the powers they have. Um, and so, yes, yeah, school can be – school can either be amazing or it can completely screw you up for life. Yeah, because there's <laughs> an unintentional environment created for that child yeah. to be his best, right? Yeah. And I guess what Mighty is about is intentional 
decision making, which leads to a great environment so children can be themselves and be seen and be heard and be the, you know, be the best selves. Absolutely. And I think the other wonderful thing that I've seen in Mighty is there's a lot in there, though, also about thinking about other people, thinking about how the words we say and the things that we do can impact other people around us. And so, you know, getting, getting people, you know, kids at an early age just to think about, you know, culture and diversity. And yes, there's, you know, there's people in your class who eat very different foods to you and celebrate different holidays and different um, parts of the year for very different reasons and trying to start those conversations so they all become just a very normal part of of that classroom and that community. Uh, and that's, I think that's also an incredibly important part of building resilience as well in young people. Do you think children are changing? Like they seem, there's you're talking about there's way more awareness <laughs> than we possibly had, right, growing up. Mm. And uh, they're, through awareness or uh, understanding, or em- it becomes comes empathy. Like when, sure. you, when you have knowledge, you have empathy. Yes, absolutely. And I, I just, I have a 10-year-old son and I see and hear things from him that are so powerful. And sometimes I wish I could, you know, be be that that kid, that child who, you know, because kids will just say things as they are. And we had a really, you know, powerful moment the other day where he was at football training and he came off the field and he looked really angry at me. And I sort of thought, oh, I don't know, you know, what the problem is here. And he just looked at me and he said, you spent your whole time on the phone, which was true because I was like, I was doing emails, getting that, you know, half hour break in at the end of the day to quickly. And I said, oh, yeah, oh, I'm, you know, tried to fob it off. I'm sorry, I just had to get some things done. And he said, when you're on your phone all the time, I don't feel supported by you. And I just went, you know, dead quiet because I was like, wow, okay. But I actually was like, thank you for just being so honest and telling me exactly how you feel because now I know exactly how you feel and you've voiced that and you've just said it so eloquently and had the confidence to tell straight to my face, I don't feel supported. I know now what I have to change and what I have to do. And I do think there's a very deep awareness now in a lot of our young people who do want things to be different and they're beginning to speak up, which is great. Absolutely. And in terms of, for you, like changing tap for a minute and taking you back, so school good for you? Good mental health? Yes, I, I feel really, I always feel really almost bad saying this, but I I had an amazing time at school. I thrived at school. There was just lots of opportunities and I got myself involved in everything. I wasn't actually particularly good at anything, but I just loved being involved because I love people. So as long as there was people, I count me in. And so, yeah, I loved it. I really, really loved school. In terms of, you know, the chat around the the, the classroom, um, Sarah Manley, what will she be when she grows up? Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think, um, I think everyone thought politician uh, to be, or no, journalist, politician slash probably doing something like I'm doing now. I did tend to, I tended to, you know, get involved in a lot of the things like debating, you know, if there was an issue, if there was a social issue that needed to be sorted at school, you could kind of find me in the mix there. But I always knew I wanted to do something and created a difference. I, I just knew that from a very, very early age. So where, where did that come from, do you think? Because that is unusual. Mm. Uh, so I th- there's probably two things that have been a driver for me. One of them's you know almost too embarrassing to admit, but I will. Uh, I so I was adopted when I was five weeks old from Chile in South America. My parents uh, adopted me, and that was a pretty big thing forty two years ago. So 
I and they were they told me so I I knew from a very early age I was adopted and you know was living a very different life to the one I would have been living and that's always been a driver for me just because I don't I don't believe people always get those chances in life so I get up every morning knowing I I got a shot to do something to be something and so that just always innately sticks with me it's I can't yeah I just can't really explain it it's just there but I remember at a very early age, very early age, seeing Hillary Clinton come on television. And back in the day, and actually at this time I was living in Australia, you know, living on a farm in the outback. And I just remember this woman coming on TV and speaking so powerfully about the world and having a really strong opinion on something. I can't really remember what she was talking about, but I remember watching her and I remember thinking, wow, that would be cool. I don't know who that is, but that looks really cool to stand there and say, this is what I think needs to change. And suddenly I just wanted to be that kind of woman. And so it's just weird. I think it's sometimes at an early age that does just happen to you. Uh, and then and then I, from an early age, got really interested in watching the news and I got interested in the world around me. And I love conversations. I loved hearing what people were. I can remember from an early age, my parents listening to talk back radio, but like me really liking it because I liked hearing what people were saying. And so I just think there's always been something in me. I've always said I will o always only work for values-based organizations and I only ever have. And that your parents are really encouraging of that. Like, so you, um, it, your confidence from a young, early age, encouraged by them. Yeah, look, very much so. Um, and I, I get it now. You kind of look back at, on it and think, oh, my God, that, you know. But mum, you know, mum had me, you know, all us kids, we were, you know, we were doing something all the time. There were squash lessons. There was piano lessons. There was singing lessons, little athletics. And, again, honestly, I was terrible at all of them. I was always the person that got most improved at the end of your prize giving. But I loved doing all those things. And because I, to be honest, was blissfully not particularly good at anything, but enjoyed being part of everything, I would just put up my hand for anything. And so nothing really scared me. And I think that came with my confidence. I it really never bothered me that I wasn't particularly good at anything. So, you know, that, that really helped. And definitely had parents who had a very strong work, work ethic. So I only ever saw my parents work. Uh, now, sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes that's a bad thing, I do admit. They probably weren't very big on the self-care thing. But the great thing is I'm I'm part of a generation, I think, that's getting that and understanding, you know, how to take those things more seriously. But I just had parents that always believed in me and they always backed me. Uh, and that makes an incredibly big difference as well. I think crucial part of growing up is we're forming our identity. And I guess for someone who's adopted that you know, that's a bit of a threat to your identity, but the fact that they shared that with you from the very beginning, like, was that was crucial. So, you know, because I know uh, I have a fair few people I know who uh, were adopted, had real crises in teenage years, and it led to, you know, extreme rebellion. Yeah. But for you, it was different? Yeah, I think because they were just so open and honest about it from the beginning. Look, and in many ways, they had to be. So my parents also had three natural-born sons they're all tall and blonde so you know my, you know people that can't see me right now I'm sitting here and I'm short with you know uh, olive skin and, and black hair so it's very clear we all walk into a room together and everyone's kind of looking at us like what happened here but mum tells this just hilarious story where when they adopted me which was 42 years ago from Chile they actually decided to keep it 
to themselves, except for like just a few very close people. Because back then it was considered very taboo for a whole a whole range of reasons. So, and they were living in Australia in the outback, and they they um, went and got me from Chile. Couldn't speak a word of Spanish, and so they had to you know hire translators and a whole range of things. And you know, brought me back. I was five weeks old, and they decided in their in our small country town, Canandra, to hold a welcome home, Sarah, and announce, I guess, my arrival to everybody. His mum said she dressed me up all nicely and had me laid out in the garden and people were coming past and, you know, doing, oh my goodness. And she said one of the neighbours came up to her and said, oh, Ray and Vivian, this is just be- beautiful. You know, like what an amazing thing to do. But don't you think she's going to have trouble learning the language? <laughs> so, you know, people back then, minds were just blowing. And, and, but I've, again, always just gone through life knowing that's just, I was adopted and, you know, on reflection, my birth mother clearly did a very selfless thing. We know a little bit of the story, but what we know is she didn't, she certainly didn't have the uh, the means to look after me. She knew Chile was a very, um, was a country where there was a lot of political and cultural issues and she wanted me out of there. And so, you know, and I just got lucky. I just ended up in an amazing family that gave me amazing opportunities. And so, you know, again, I feel like it's my, I feel like it's my duty to do something with that. And it's never, it's never, um, it's never really got in the way of anything. But like you, I know people where it definitely has. It's got in the way. Definitely has. And what's your, any willingness to sort of visit there, travel there? Like, have you, have you sort of un- unlocked that door? Unlocking it at the moment, actually, it's, uh, it's, I've decided I'm going to do it because I, well, now I have a son, of course, who's half Chilean too. And I just think it might be, um, it's not like I have a deep longing. Some people do, you know, some people get up and it eats them up day and night, you know, in terms of, I don't know who my birth parents were and I don't know where I've come from. I think now mine's just a curiosity and I'd like to explore that a little bit. So definitely thinking this is probably the year where I'll uh, do it, you know, because I think when I do, I don't know if other people do this, when you sit there and think actually are there regrets, you know, if I get hit by the bus tomorrow or, you know, something happens in the next three years is what's going to be my biggest regret. And I think now actually, well, you know, you were born in Chile, you are Chilean and funnily enough, sometimes I'll go places, I go to America and they just, they just absolutely speak Spanish to me the whole time. And when I say to people, no, 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 hablo español, you know, they're like, what? So yeah, you know, just to go back to where I'm from and get a sense of who I am and and just explore that, you know, maybe my understanding from a little bit of research is that actually my birth mother might be alive. And so that is, yeah, that could be a really once in a lifetime opportunity as well. Awesome. Growing up in the outback? Wow. (laughs) Um, Tell us a bit about how you found your way to sort of a purposeful role. (laughs) Um, Again, I think my parents actually had a massive influence on me because when I I look back on it, even in that little outback town, my parents were part of everything. You know, they were, you know, mum was part of the PTA. Dad was a volunteer firefighter. They don't They don't ever talk about it as volunteering. You know, they were just like, that's what you do when you live in a community. So they, you know, they did everything and were part of everything. And I think I just grew up with that sense of, oh, yeah, that's what you do when you get older. You contribute in some way. So I think, again, that's, that's just been a really big driver. Um, but again, as I explored the world and really delved into current events and 
just looked at things around me. I just thought I, I sort of want to be part of something that makes this world a little bit better, a little bit brighter. And I know it sounds really cheesy. I have three brothers that are in the corporate world and they always laugh at me and joke about, oh, when are you going to get a real job? And it's just a joke, you know, that we have between us. But I could never, yeah, I just, I just love what I do and that's where I want to be. So I feel like I have a very real job. And the move to New Zealand, when did that happen? That happened when I was 11 years old, yeah. That happened when I was 11. So um, we had we did visits in between Australia and New Zealand because I had New Zealand grandparents. But I very much feel like a Kiwi now, if I'm honest. Uh, I feel, yeah, I feel wherever I go, I talk about being a Kiwi, a New Zealander. And you, you went on eventually to... Uh, yeah, really significant role with St. John, mm. St. John Ambulance, yes. I'd like to call it. Tell us about how you got to that role, because you rose to sort of deputy CEO before before this role, but mm. tell us about the sort of journey to get to that. Yeah, that was that was unreal. So, Hatohane uh, uh, St. John provides the well, ambulance service and a whole range of charitable programs and services across the country, but I think obviously, you know, most people like I did were like, oh yeah, there's, that's, that's the ambulance. Uh, and they had a regional manager role going, I applied for it, and I got it. That was my first people management role, if I'm, um, I remember that. That was the first time I was ever responsible for managing people. <laughs> and so that was, that was quite a big leap for me. And look, it just became one of those organisations that there's a joke, once you get into St. John, you can't get out. It's kind of true. But you just meet the most fascinating people every day. And there's just so much going on all the time. And I loved it. I was just in my element, quite frankly, and uh, had the real opportunity to do some really great work and create some really new programs. And if I'm honest, when I went in 11 years ago, there was a really good, you know, brand. There was a really good structure. There was a lot of resources. But there wasn't actually much work, good work. I don't mean that rudely, but there was things that, could easily, just with a bit of love, time, attention and care, there's, there was things that could have been made better. And that's what I just decided to do. I was like, wow, what an opportunity to come in here and create some new programs and work with some new communities and try and pull some partnerships together. So I really just put my head down and did that. And I think because, you know, I know it's a cliche, but you start doing the work and you start producing some results and you get noticed. And that's sort of what happened. And then before I knew it, I sat on the executive, yeah, for six years, leading their community health uh, services and strategies, which reached about 12,000 people across the country. It was it was huge. It was just a massive learning curve for me to suddenly get a call from the CEO one day and say, Sarah, you're going to be sitting on exec. And so come to the exec table tomorrow. And me, like, going, what the hell is an exec? Like, what are you, what are you talking about? And coming into a meeting room where people were reading board papers that, like, these massive packs of board papers, and I'm just like, okay. And I just remember sitting there so quietly, just people using words I'd never heard of before, people talking about link, things I just didn't understand, and me just sitting there going, I, I could be in a foreign country right now. I have no idea what these people were talking about. And of course, you know, walking out of there going, this isn't going to work. Like, this, how is this going to work? But it does. It actually does. Uh, I reached out to my, I reached out to people. I reached out to colleagues. I got really good advice. And then you just have to start backing yourself. You just have to go, well, actually, there's a reason I got asked to be here. I have a point of difference. And maybe my difference is I can talk like a real person. 
And maybe when I read these papers, maybe in some ways I can translate them like a real person and talk to the real issues versus sort of the gobbledygook thing can sort of go on in, in some of these things. And so, yeah, it was it was an amazing, it was an amazing role, transformational for me, both professionally and personally. Because it's a large organisation, it's complex as well, isn't it? Very complex, Very yeah. complex. Um, <laughs> and it's been through, you know, it's been through some um, difficult periods as well as it strikes as change and, you know, like, he obviously saw something in you that you had doubts about yourself to yeah. a certain extent. Yeah, most definitely. Um, so I, I, I suffered, I think, for ages with imposter syndrome, without a doubt. So I, know, I think maybe that happens to a lot of people too when they get into their new management positions. You start you start fearing that moment when someone's going to come in and tap you on the shoulder and go, we worked it out, you don't know what you're doing, do you? <laughs> but you sort of work out clearly we're all winging it. Lights none, go off, yeah, sirens none, start yeah, ringing. No, yeah. You know, no one, really, no one really has the answers. Uh, but I think, and I see it, I see it now, I'm, I have an ability to connect with people and to relate to people. And I've worked out that actually if you're a good relationship builder, and an effective relationship builder, you can get a lot of things done if you can build trust, if you can build, you know, authenticity, if you can do all those things and be an approachable person, use your networks well around you, then actually you can usually you can usually find a solution to whatever it is that you need to. And so really that's what I started focusing on. It's the whole actually just stop thinking about what you're not doing or you're not and start thinking about actually where's where are my strengths where do I feel good where do I feel comfortable where do I know I get my energy and my buzz from and go to that space and that's that's really essentially what I did and my confidence grew and my confidence grew but I was also very lucky to have my and he's currently the CEO there Peter Bradley who just believed in me and he mentored me and he pushed me and I always, I mean, we've heard the saying, and I can't remember who to attribute it to, but they say, you know, good leaders take people to where they're meant to be, whether they know they're meant to be there or not. And that's exactly what Peter did with me. He put a lot of time and energy into me uh, and was there every step of the way for the things that didn't work, <laughs> for the things that went really well. And also for the things out of my comfort zone. You know, I realize now when there were things where I'm like, well, hold on, how come he's not helping me do that? And it's like, actually, Sarah, he's giving you the space because you need to lean into this and you need to you need to do this and cut your teeth. But you can go back to him and through that process and keep talking to him and he'll guide you. Not everybody gets that. But I tell you what, when you get that person, they just, they can they can change your life. And he did. Yeah. yeah. And that person come along in time of your life, can't they? That can help you lead you in the right direction, give you the confidence and belief. The main thing is belief, right? Yes. Um, and so, you know, 10 years in one organization, it's a large organization, <laughs> uh, it's complex. So there's some enjoyment, I guess, in the complexity. Mm. Must have been a really tough decision to, to leave. And, um, you know, because 10 years can suddenly turn to 20 years quite easily, right? <laughs> it certainly can, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you're in a very different situation now. So you've got your CEO of a uh, mental health charity, You've got, from what I can see, two or three direct reports. You need to uh, fundraise for the money that you know pays your salary, keeps the lights <laughs> on, uh, delivers the services. You've got a really committed, um, you know, founder chairman, which is wonderful, who's got you know real uh, power locally in terms of generating income, and he's got real mana. But decision to leave, man, that was being <laughs> quite challenging because you're walking away from a lot of things that become a comfort oh yeah uh, you know definitely and I you know I was super happy there I loved my job 
I worked with amazing people. I had phenomenal collegial relationships with people. I got a lot of flexibility and freedom. You know, um, I was paid well. And like I said, I had this amazing boss who believed in me and just kept giving me opportunity after opportunity. So why, why leave? Yeah, why leave? Because I was comfortable. And I think each to their own, but I never wanted to be a seat warmer. And I want to continue to be challenged and continue to be pushed. I think it's normal human condition. I just personally don't think it's healthy to retain a role for the sake of retaining a role because it works for you. And so I thought, let's just let's just go back out there and see. Let's do it, Sarah. See what you're capable of. And don't, I mean, all those things that you just listed about being a charity CEO, right? You just, you go, oh my God. We, I, ha- I mean, I'm not going to lie. I have those moments. I come, why? Why? You know, because when I was at Hata Hone St. John, something could land on your desk, but there were big uh, support services to help you get those things. You could hand things over, delegate. Uh, you know, if you can't do that in small charities. <laughs> and so there has been some really big changes but I think it's healthy as a human to, to remind yourself to not be comfortable all the time. Because I think one of the biggest changes when you go from large to small for nonprofits, especially, is not so much stuff walks towards you. Like mm. it just doesn't come at you. You've mm. got to go out and find it yes. and generate it, yes. that generation of stuff. And, and um, love the reasons why you, you've done it. But in the first eight months, some of that stuff, I guess it would have been challenging. Yeah, oh, yeah, definitely, without a doubt. You go through a transition. I mean, you definitely go through a transition. And it's almost like, it's a terrible analogy, but it is almost like a relationship breakup. Like you, you, you break up with someone you've been dating for 10 years who is so familiar to you, you know, and you've had a really great time together. And then you move on to your new partner. And you, it's all very exciting. And you're sort of having a really good time, but you have those moments where you're like, oh my goodness, or maybe I, you know, do I need to, to phone in my, my my ex and have a chat because it just feels very familiar and I need familiar right now. So yeah, there's, there definitely has been challenges, but there's also been really going to small. There's a lot of positive changes and challenges as well, because I realize now in, in large organizations, you can hide, you can hide if you want to and just kind of push things to the side and kick the can down the road. You just can't afford to in small organizations. You know, you have to, you actually Every day, you're focused very much on one purpose, as we are at Mighty, and that is to to get this education into as many you know schools as we can across the country. With respect to an organisation as large as Hatohane St John, they have a million competing priorities, and I don't miss that feeling of trying to solve 20 things in one day and then actually not pushing anything forward, I actually am preferring the challenge of having a very clear purpose. And I think that, for me, has been one of the really positive shifts. And you feel energised through having that really clear single mission? Yeah, I do, because it just because you can't stray. Or, and, but, and if you do find yourself straying, you just have that moment of why. Why, have I, why, have I, why am I going down this rabbit hole? That's Doing that over there isn't going to get us into more schools, you know. And so, actually, you can protect your energy. I remember being at Hatohane St. John, and I just said yes to too many things. I was definitely the person that was like, yes, 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 to every partnership opportunity, to every everything you can imagine. It was just yes, 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 yes. And you you learn very quickly that no is actually a lot more powerful. Yeah, because I think you set your stall out 
years earlier, don't you? And it's very hard to you can build up a lot of lot of stuff. You say yes to a lot of mm, stuff mm. over many many years. Yes. Um, so in terms, of this job came up. So you started looking. This job came up, and then you really wanted it, and you really kind of sold yourself well, threw yourself at it? like Yeah, I, I saw, I mean, I'd been keeping my eye on Mighty uh, just in general because uh, we, when I was in my uh, other role, we had begun to also develop some my- mental health programs. So I, I knew that Mighty was out there and I had met JK before, obviously, you know, phenomenally impressed by the work that he's done. And so I did hear about the role come out, but ironically, within about a two-week period, I had a number of people text me from different spaces and walks of life in my life saying, have you seen this role? This is you. And by the time I got about that fifth text, I just thought, oh, maybe there's, there's, maybe something, there's in something in this. Yeah. So I just went, you know what? Do it. Just, just you know, put your application in. You do, you love, you, I've been, like I said, I've been watching them. I've been impressed by them. I have a lot of respect for JK. Give it a shot. You've been saying, and, and I had been talking to my to my boss about, you know, what would the next step look like? And so it just felt like the timing was right. And then lo and behold, you get the call up and then you get the role. And you're just like, oh, you know, you get that phone call and you're like, oh my goodness, I just I just got offered the CEO role. What just happened? <laughs> Amazing. And so these, you know, it's called the John Kerwin or Sir John Kerwin mm. Foundation. So that in many ways, really helps your cause. So yeah, it opens it doors. Yes, it does. Absolutely opens doors. But have you have you heard of something? I know, and I know you have because we talked about this previously. But there's something called founder syndrome, right? So, <laughs> and one of the things I I understand is that it's to to John Kerwin doesn't necessarily want this charity to be called after him. Like it's for him, it's purely about the mission, and that's really clear to the the population. Like New Zealand knows that he he stands for good mental health. That's key to what he's doing so it's not there's no vanity um play here this is a really mission purposeful charity right that you're going to be leading a hundred percent um and if anything jk is far too humble and it as CEO really frustrates me because (laughs) you know bless um he is he's really he has a lot of humility he he would much prefer mighty was the the brand and the visibility not so much him and jk but I have to keep explaining to him that, you know, you are the jewel in our crown. I mean, Mighty is phenomenal and it is brilliant and we we love it and we know we have something incredibly credible and potent. And over the next few years, we will be building on that. But actually, JK, we people simply, they get behind us because of you. But for him, of course, I mean, I, I can't, ex- I mean, you know, I can't explain really what it's like to be him, but to work with him and see the influence he has on people. And yeah, it's, he's just, he's too humble because I obviously want to roll him out for everything. <laughs> you know, I want JK, come to this, JK, do this, JK, we need you, you know. And of course, he's pulled in a million different directions. And what I love about JK, though, and this is what makes him such an impressive man, is but he'll always be there for us. And he's made that very clear to me. He doesn't want to do everything. And I don't blame him. He can't be everything to everybody. And so, you know, we need to, um, JK will always be there when he's needed though. And he's always said that. And it's true. Even during Rugby World Cup time, I was having conversations with him at, you know, seven o'clock in the morning while he's he's somewhere in Europe. But he will always be there when needed. So, no, a lot of humility, and I, uh, it's yeah, it's just a real genuine honour to work with him. Awesome. So 
great that he's humble and I and I know I've heard that from others and I know it's mission and purposeful what he's what this is all about but it's also his baby right so he started it so it's it must be a little bit daunting because and he, you know that he'll have his opinion about almost anything yep. any any startup founder whether it's for a non-profit or a yeah. for-profit I guess you've just got to keep an eye on that and make sure that you discipline him <laughs> if he steps out of line. Look, so far, and I'm not just saying this, even though I'll send in the link, um, is he's been incredibly respectful of me being a CEO and being incredibly respectful of what are management decisions. But at the same time, like I said, he's incredibly willing to say when something hard comes up or I'm a bit stuck to, he's just call me, let's talk it over. We'll just work it out. We'll work through it. So I'm very, very lucky, uh, very lucky in that regard. But yeah, it is his baby. And I'm working with quite a few people too in the team who also, you know, it's their baby. They've literally been working on it since day one. But I will say mums and dads know their babies best. So there is also, I think, a need to listen and to say, look, there, you know, if something comes up and maybe I have a different opinion or thought on what direction it should go into others, sit back and listen, Sarah. Like there's a reason, there's a reason that they want to go in another direction. So let's hear it out and we can unpack these things. I'm not, I'm not yet wedded to, um, you know, anything necessarily. I believe in uh, the whole, you know, put smart people around you, listen to what they've got to say and come to sort of a collective agreement about the direction that you need to head in. And so far we seem to be doing that really well. And crucially, he's built a really impressive board. Yes, uh, of yeah, people. So, yes. Um, you know, you're not the only person who has to, has to keep him in line. Like there's some <laughs> other board members who, um, uh, you know, they they clearly, you know, there's people in there who have been skilled in managing money. Yes, there's people crucially who understand the issues that young people face from a practical perspective, also academic perspective. But yeah, that that board and that is set up crucial to the future success of the organisation. Yeah, look, definitely. Um, A board with a really diverse and impressive skill set, they're incredibly giving with their time. And, you know, I can genuinely say hand on heart since coming into this role, I've only ever felt supported and welcomed and lifted up by that board, which is a such a great place to be a CEO. You know, you can't you can't really ask for more than that. But also, I know that they this is a there's shared accountability, there's shared responsibility, there's shared shared everything in regards to what is going on at Mighty. And again, as CEO, that just makes the job that much easier. So I feel um, I feel incredibly lucky to be in an environment like that. So eight months in, mm. what's been your approach? Because, you know, like the 100-day the listen yeah. and learn, like yeah. did you do that? Did, what, what was your approach? I did quite a bit of prep before coming into this role, including uh, coaching sessions just to actually debrief on my time at St. John because I knew I was holding on to something big there. So you almost, again, you're almost doing the breakup counselling and then moving into actually now I've, I draw a line in that sand, that chapter has finished and I'm starting my new chapter. So now I really want to, you know, plan how I can hit the ground running well. So I made sure that I was getting coaching during that period and and continuously actually. So Coaching for your own yeah, journey. Yeah, just like, leadership coaching mm. for myself because you need, in a new role and I think in a CEO role, you you need that space. You need that person to say, this happened this week and actually it made me feel really crap or this happened and I overshot the mark or, you know, et cetera. I had to do a lot of listening. Like on reflection, though, I didn't listen enough because I'm still learning. Eight months in and I'm still learning. Uh, so I think there were a few things that I, I came in and, 
probably a, a surge of just excitement and overconfidence where you're like, actually, if I just pull that lever now, that's what that'll work. It'll just work. And some and some of those little things did work, but a few of them didn't. And you just sort of go, oh, actually, if I just waited just a little bit longer and I'd talk to a few more people and I'd listened. Could you give us an example? Oh, uh, yeah. So there was um, there was a couple of changes that we just needed to make in regards to reporting lines. And in my head, um, spoken like a true manager, small things, you know, you as in you think this is a small change. It's not actually going to have a significant issue. It's not going to really, it doesn't change anything. It just is kind of formalizing some practices that are already in place but we should you know do do some good um housekeeping here and tidy it up and formalize what needs to be formalized and again like I say to me kind of a 101 sort of quick but you forget very quickly actually it's not it's not so much the process but it's taking people on the journey and just giving them just a little bit more time to talk about things and I mean we got we, we got things across the line but on reflection I could have I could have done it better I could have listened and I think I probably also should have just really checked in with my team around me about what what conversations are they comfortable having and not just assuming their conversations that that person is comfortable to have? You know, it's very easy in a new role. You make assumptions. And so I think you have to test those assumptions a little bit more. But all things that we got through well, but you just you do you do look back and you just reflect on, oh, I wish I'd spent a bit more time on that. Just had a thought, ra- rather random, but you you know, over Christmas, you're catching up with new people, friends. Mm. People say, Sarah, what do you do? And suddenly, I imagine it leads to a whole raft of conversation around yes. rugby, <laughs> rugby league, <laughs> mental well, health. Anyone that knows me incredibly well doesn't bother to speak sport with me because, you know, I, I don't know uh, particularly much. So I – but no, it does. Yeah, no, definitely because – the minute, of course, and you say Sir John Kirwan. But it, the thing I love too, everybody has a JK story. So everybody either ran into JK in a cafe or knew his, you know, father who was a butcher or it's just anywhere you go. And so you always get the JK story, which is lovely. You know, it's, it's lovely to make those connections and for, and for people to feel uh, connected like that. But yes, no, it opens great conversations. But the reality is for mental health, and I think anyone in the sector, particularly when it comes to talking about children, you know, having the barbecue conversations or, you know, talking over the fence. I've never met a person in New Zealand or probably globally who doesn't believe that this shouldn't be taking place in schools. Everybody's like, this is a no-brainer. In fact, why is it not happening? How is it that we're not doing this? This should just be, this should just be a given. And you know, obviously, with the new um, and current government, we are going to see a lot of education reform. But we need to remember that whether it's an hour of math or whether it's an you know an hour of writing, anxious kids don't learn. So it doesn't matter if it's thirty five minutes or an hour or three hours. If a child has anxiety and has other things going on for them, then yeah, that learning isn't going to sink in. So there's even a step you know, there's another step too that the government needs to look at and that is mental health education and everybody understands that. Because that interaction, and I know you guys talk a lot about the interaction between what happens with Mighty in the school and then also in the community and at home. Mm-hmm. And that's been the criticism of of sort of um, program-focused intervention over the years is that you can have this amazing program that a young person goes through, but then they go home to a world of pain mm-hmm. and a world of kind of crap. Mm-hmm. But that consciousness of the mighty program to you know take in the whole community approach 
to this because that's crucial, right? And you said yourself, actually, the children come home and affect things at home. So your son called you out on mm. your mm. lack of um, turning up mm. and being uh, <laughs> conscious of his reality at that moment when you're on your phone. But yeah, that, that's a crucial part of this. Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, this is the whole school approach, but it's about trying to uh, make that bigger impact in communities. And we genuinely believe that, and there'll always be a need for mental health promotion. There'll always be a need for mental health prevention but we believe that mental health education is where we will see the change and so that's that is where our relentless focus uh, is going to be so amanda massive thank you for joining me on purposely thank you very much mark thanks for listening to purposely podcast please subscribe and leave a review i hope you like what you're hearing because i sure do 